Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I said, we are finishing up Matthew chapter 14. We're in verse 34. Let me remind you of a couple of things about where we are. The disciples had crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Their intention was to go to the other side so they could get a little break some rest, some relaxation, but unfortunately things didn't go as planned and what was supposed to be a little retreat for them ended up as this full day of ministry that went right up into the evening. Second thing that I'll remind you that we learned in chapter 14 is when they got into the boat that they had much difficulty getting across the sea. They actually weren't even trying to go all the way across the sea. I think we have a little map here that we can give you an idea of where they were and where they were trying to go. You see, they were just kind of up in that northern section there trying to get from one point to the other. But the scripture says that the trip was interrupted by a strong wind that beat against them. And a trip that should have taken them probably an hour or so went on for somewhere between six and nine hours. They just weren't getting anywhere and they were struggling. And if you were here, you know that it was into those circumstances that Jesus appeared to them walking on the water, that he had been watching them from the hillside of where they had been, and now he was with them, right there in the midst of the storm. And that through all of that, we learned that he taught them some things about himself that they would have never been able to learn about themselves if everything had gone, about himself, if everything had gone smoothly prior. And this storm... It was difficult, it was uncomfortable, I'm sure it was scary, but we saw that the Lord was in the storm and that he was going to use it for good in their lives. And so those are kind of, that's the background to where we are. Now they get to the other side of the sea. The scripture we learned said Jesus got into the boat with them after Peter came out on the water and walked and they were at the shores and they get there onto the shores and we read these verses starting in verse 34. It says, now when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. You know, in in some respects, I think Jesus would be able to relate, not in a lot of respects, but in some respects with our modern day pop stars. Because it seems that wherever Jesus went and people recognized that he was there, that a whole crowd of people would suddenly form and begin to gather. And that same thing happens here. Once again, Jesus comes to the other side of the river and the crowds begin to notice and word begins to filter about that Jesus is here. And so multitudes of people, it seemed, come. As we see, they bring from all of that region, they bring to him those who are sick and they begin to implore him that he might heal them. The people you see here, they're desperate. As a matter of fact, that verse there, that word there in verse 36 that says that they implored him, that word, it literally means they begged him. And so the people are desperate. They're begging him that he would take a look at their sick friend and that he would heal them. And again, they brought to him, as it says, they're all who were sick. And once again, this wasn't his intention. It wasn't his plan to go to that side of the sea to do some healing or whatever, but Jesus was moved by their sickness and and all of that and their need and that they were begging him and he began to touch them and to heal their sickness. Now something jumps out at me in those verses there. It's in verse 36 where you have that familiar phrase. We've seen this phrase already in our study of the book of Matthew where it says that the crowds were uh, imploring him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Sound familiar? Do you recall that sound, that, that phrase? 
that was the same phrase that we saw that the woman that had the issuance of blood for 12 years and she kind of meandered her way through the crowd and pushed her way through the crowd. So, and she said, if I might just touch the, the hem of his garment. I think we have the verse there in Matthew 9:21. She said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Just like these people, she was desperate to touch the fringe of his garment. And it gets me wondering, because this woman is from the same place as all of these people are now in Gennesaret. Capernaum and Gennesaret are only a few miles away. And so it gets me wondering if the reason why all of these people are bringing all of these people to Jesus, that they might just touch the hem of his garment, is because after she had touched the hem of his garment, she went back and told people, what Jesus had done for her. She went back and relayed her story. I, I can't help but think that the reason why they're so adamant to get to Jesus is because of the testimony of that woman. That she had come, every person that she had come in contact with, she said to them, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. And in that story of what Jesus did for her was the time that she made her way. She defied all norms. She shouldn't have done what she did as far as the rules are concerned. But she defied all of these norms and she squeezed her way in and she got to the, the hem of his garment and grabbed onto it. And that symbol there for her and the faith that was released as she did so, she was healed. And I suspect as she shared her testimony with others, now they're saying, well, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing. If that's what it is, I'm going to do the same thing. My friends, there is great power in our testimony. And I think a lot of times we think, I don't know what to tell people. Well, you can begin with by telling them how Jesus changed your life and how he came into your life and he transformed your thinking and oftentimes how he transforms our actions. They need to be transformed so often as well, but the work that the Lord does. And so I just want to encourage you in this. Tell others what the Lord has done and is doing in your life. So let me give you some examples. If somebody commends you on your marriage, then point out to them the way in which God has been working on you to make you a better wife or a better husband and give testimony. If someone takes notice of your patient response in the midst of life's difficulties, you know the truth. Let them know the way in which God is strengthening you by his grace to persevere with patience in the midst of those difficulties. If you come across a person that is in a very similar place that you perhaps once were in your life as well, let them know how Jesus unstuck you from that particular place and set you free. Give testimony. The Apostle Peter, he says in his book, he says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have within you. And so if I come across a person that is in the same place that I once was, I have hope for them because I was there. And I know that you can be set free from that. And let me explain to you how. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And yet often I think we respond and we're kind of like, oh, shucks, you know, and we're like, thanks, buddy, you know, boy. And, and we, we just sort of like shrug it away because we don't want to be proud or something like that. Let me tell you, you have nothing to do with it. It's Jesus that is the, doing the work within you and that is changing you. And point people to Christ because it's very hard to argue with a changed life. I don't agree with your theology. Well, I'll just tell you. My life is completely and radically changed as a result. Just take notice of that and see how you doing, you know, or something like that. And so it's very hard to argue with a changed life. And, and I, th I think for me, that's one of the most exciting parts of those last three verses of chapter 14 is to consider the likelihood that she went back and told others what God had done for her. And now they're coming in numbers to see Jesus as well. 
Now let's move on to chapter 15. I lost my water. I always do this. Would you hang right there for a minute? I'm so sorry. Uh, if only Jen Cherry's water was here, I could take it again. Yeah. All right, chapter 15. Some of it. It says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? This sounds like a mom and child argument that is going on here. We'll explain it. For the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Well, as we return, well, as we enter chapter 15, we return to the familiar conflict that Jesus oftentimes had and we've seen with religious leaders. Verse 1 and 2 of the chapter tells us that this time the conflict is with Pharisees and scribes that had come up from Jerusalem or come from Jerusalem, and that those Pharisees and scribes, you see there in, in those first two verses, that they begin to question Jesus on the practice of his disciples. Now, again, we know that Jesus had had his run-ins with religious leaders, But this is, as far as I remember, this is the first time that he's having a run-in with the religious leaders' religious leaders. Do you understand what I mean by that? So it's not the local religious leaders, but these are the real religious leaders. These are the guys that are from Jerusalem, the head honchos. And they come all the way to Galilee from Jerusalem. That's about 65 miles or so, depending on where Jesus exactly is, 65 to 80 miles. They make this journey to observe Jesus and to confront Jesus. So you know what happened is that the local religious leaders wrote a letter of some sorts to the big-time religious leaders, and they said, we're going to need a little help here. We're going to need a little help here. We got this guy that's getting a little out of control up here. And they come, and they find him, and they say, your disciples, why are they breaking the traditions of the elders? Now, the specific concern that we have, we see it in the verse here, has to do with their ceremonial hand washing. So we're not talking about, you know, you got a bunch of slobs for disciples. Their hands are all dirty and they're digging into their food and it's in the bowl with everybody else. That's not what they're concerned about, though that is a valid concern, by the way. Wash your hands, you slobs, or whatever. Jot that down as a lesson learned. But what they're concerned about is ceremonial hand washing. There was a very specific process that you had to hold your hands in certain ways and the amount of water that you had to pour, and you had to go through this whole process to do so. And so what they're really concerned with is that they're violating the tradition of the elders. Hand washing is just the specific that they're concerned with. Now, the tradition of the elders that these Pharisees and scribes are speaking of was based on the extra-biblical ideas. And so when we say extra-biblical, we mean that it's kind of based on Bible, but it's not in the Bible. And the Pharisees and the scribes and religious leaders through the centuries had an extra-biblical idea that in addition to the written law that Moses gave us, that Moses and the Jews, that Moses also gave spoken word as well. They call that the oral law or the oral tradition. And it's based, and somebody somewhere jotted down those oral traditions 
And based on that, these ideas came forth. Now, the problem is we know what Moses wrote down. We don't necessarily know what Moses spoke about in other instances or whatever, but they did. They were certain about it. And so they had this oral tradition that they would pass down in addition to the written tradition. Then as time went on, the Jewish rabbis, they began to write down the so-called oral tradition of Moses. Then they began to comment on what Moses meant when he supposedly said what he said. You see how it's like that whisper down the lane game? You know, we're all the way over here. And the, that written rabbi commentary on the supposed oral tradition of Moses, you've probably heard of it. It's what's called the Jewish Talmud. Have you heard of that, the Jewish Talmud? There's about 6,300 pages in the Jewish Talmud. Now, if you turn to the back of your Bible that you may have in your hands now, you probably have a total of about 15 to 2,000 pages in your entire Bible. And remember, Moses is only the first five books, essentially. So they have 6,300 pages, three times our whole Bible commentary. And so in that, all sorts of other ideas began to develop. It's a whole lot of additional commentary that these leaders began to peddle as gospel truth. This is the truth because we said it is the truth. And so you have to follow it the way we tell you that you have to follow it. And they created all sorts of rules that it seems have gone so far down the path from what God had originally given to Moses that they perhaps didn't even remember the commands that God had given to Moses. And if they did, our tradition supersedes Moses there. And that's not good. And Jesus calls them out for it. And so look at verse 3. He says, and why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Imagine this conversation. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother will surely die. And anyone who tells his father and mother, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Everything I would have given you, I've given to God. He doesn't have to honor his father. So for the sake of tradition, you make void the word of God. So catch this. They ask, why do you break our traditions? He responds and says, why do you break God's commandments? They give an example. You don't wash your hands. He gives an example. You don't honor your father and your mother. You see, they're having this thing back and forth here, and he offers them examples. He's responded to what they are saying, and the example that he gives is that Moses made it very clear that it was the responsibility of the son or the daughter to honor their father and mother, and that failure to do so would involve strong consequences. Specifically, the example that Jesus is kind of pointing to is the idea of having older or elderly, uh, an elderly mom or dad. And in the day, you know, before Social Security, before work pensions and all of that, the need to care for the elderly fell in, to the responsibility of the children, the grown children. And despite the fact that mom or dad gave these kids life and changed their diapers, I don't know if they had diapers, but got up with them in the middle of the night and all of that, I read a study that CNN Money estimates that the average cost to raise a child from 0 to 18 in America is $245,000. The average, I know, kids, aren't you grateful now? $245,000 is the average cost to raise a kid in America. And despite all of those sacrifices of parents, it's not uncommon to find grown kids that forget that and see their elderly parents as nothing more than a burden. Thoughts like, well, this is my money, the grown child might think. Why should I have to sacrifice and care for somebody else? And similarly, that's what's going on here. And conveniently, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, they came up with a tradition that provided an out for a person 
who was not inclined to care for their parents in their days of need. And the practice was that they could announce that this particular thing, this item here, they could announce that this thing was dedicated to God. So let's just say, for instance, you had a, a fancy gold pot. It was worth a whole lot of money. And, you know, it sat in your room or whatever. And then you realize that, you know, your parents are struggling financially. They got to go to the doctors, whatever it may be. And you could sell this pot. And you could bring in a whole bunch of money and it would pay for the parents' care for a whole year or whatever. And you're like, I don't want to sell that pot. I like that pot. It's my favorite pot or whatever. Your out could simply be, oh, boy, you know, if I sold that pot, I could really help them. But I dedicated that pot to God. That's God's pot. I can't sell God's pot. And that, that sounds bad. Um, you know, <laughs> and then you move on from there. It's terrible. All right, well, anyway. Do you see where I'm going? You got a whole bunch of money in the bank account or whatever it may be. So you didn't actually have to give the item away to God. You didn't have to give it to the church or something like that. You could keep it. And it would be your own, but you would say that that's dedicated to the Lord, and thus you couldn't use it to help your mother, uh, Mark or dad. Mark, the gospel writer, he refers to the term, you could pronounce Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. You could pronounce Corban, which means given to God, and essentially get away with, now you're able to say, I'd help you if I could, but unfortunately I'm not able to. Well, as you can imagine, many, many people that were stingy would use this as an excuse to be such and to protect their resources and keep them their possessions as their own and in doing so they violated the commandments of God as Jesus says they made void the word of God and so he calls out these elders that their traditions are wrong and they contradict the word and if I'm going to keep your tradition then I got to violate the word of God and he calls them out for that and you have to know that this backcountry preacher. Where'd you go to school? Look at you. Look at the clothes you wear, because Jesus was relatively poor. They're looking at this guy, and they're saying, who are you to talk to us? We are the religious leaders from Jerusalem with our fancy clothes, where everybody calls us sir, where everyone thinks very highly of us and moves out of the way and gets all kind of amazed in our presence here. And you have the nerve to call us out on our understanding of or, or what God says to us? They must, have, they must have been shocked. They must have been blown away. And if they were, they would have really loved the next thing he says. Look at verse 7. He calls them hypocrites. And then he quotes from the scripture to prove why they're hypocrites. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. Now, the word hypocrites, you perhaps are familiar. It's a term which really could be translated a two-faced actor. It's the same term that is used to describe those masks that you see in uh, or in theater, in high schools or whatever, the happy face and the sad face. And the whole idea is that an actor can put any face he needs or she needs to put on to play that particular part. That's great if you're an actor. Wow, you can play a lot of parts. That's excellent. It's not good in your relationship with God. You don't want to be a hypocrite. You don't want to be a guy that puts on one face but is an entirely different person altogether, saying one thing and doing another, saying that you love God and you want to serve God but by your traditions doing neither, rather loving yourself and serving yourself. And so Jesus calls them out. He quotes Isaiah chapter 29. Again, these are the religious leaders. And he says to these religious leaders, you're honoring God with your lips, but your heart is very far from God. I'm sure everybody, you, 
the whole crowd, you know, all the people that are there, because nobody speaks this way and nobody thinks this way about the religious leaders. But Jesus knows the truth. Jesus wasn't concerned with their lip service, and he wasn't concerned with their lips or their hands or their feet, but he was concerned about their heart. We tend to be so much more interested in the external, things that we see in other people or things other people see in us. Many of us, the motivation for walking out our Christian faith is wrong, but I'll tell you what it is. For many of us, our motivation for walking out our Christian faith is what are other people going to think of me? If I act that way, do that, go that place, say those things, what are other people going to think of me? That's a dangerous way and a miserable way to live your Christian life. You want to have it where out of your heart you live your life. And so I go the places I go because the Lord's leading me to go to the places I go, not because I care what you guys think of me. No offense, I like you guys and all that stuff. But if all I ever did was care about what you think of me, then when I go overseas or I go out to California and none of you are around, that's when I'll sneak around because nobody here knows me. I can do whatever I want. Well, I'm the same person there as I am here because it's in my heart. I hope it's in your heart as well. Sorry, did I get a little worked up over there? Somebody, forgive me. What will people think of me? Will they perceive me to be religious? Will will I look as if I have gotten it all together? But again, the Lord is more interested in the internal. And so nurture your relationship with him. It is a whole lot easier for us to simply throw a mask on and give the appearance that all is well and that we've got it all together. But what Jesus prefers and demands is that we dig in a little that we seek him in prayer, that we begin to meditate on his word. We let it search us, and we say, Lord, you know what? I don't want to go. We say this often. I don't want to go through all that. Just give me a quick fix. Give me a new set of clothes, new you know, mask that I can put on, and I'll be good to go. And he says, you want me to just to skip to the end and help you be a hypocrite? I'm not helping you be a hypocrite, the Lord says. And so he has us dig in so we can deal with the heart. Now, the real problem with these religious leaders is that they elevated man's traditions above God's word. And I do want to say this, because, you know, we're Calvary, and we meet in an ugly building and all this kind of stuff, and we we, we kind of downplay traditions and things like that. But the reality, traditions aren't necessarily bad, but they have to hold their proper place in our lives. And too much, what we think of as the Christian faith is not based on Scripture, but on traditions. Traditions that have just kind of developed over the last thousands of years. And maybe they began at a good place. But like that whisper down the lane, they ended up somewhere. And you're like, what are you doing? And why are you doing it? Today I was just looking at some Facebook thing. And and it was this video of some guy. And he said, look, when you struggle with temptation, what you need to do, you have to carry a crucifix around in your pocket. And you kiss it. And God will bless you with the power to overcome. Like, what are we talking about? Like, that's not biblical. Yeah, but how many people do it? And here's this religious leader that was teaching people to do that. It's a tradition, but it's not a biblical idea. We don't follow traditions. We follow the words of God. And so show me in the word of God why we're doing what we're doing. Why am I kissing this crucifix? Show me that in the word of God. Show me that in the word of God, and I'll do it. Otherwise, it's just a preference. I wouldn't do that, but some of the things, otherwise, they're just preferences. I'll listen to what you have to say. Meditate on it, think about it, seek the Lord on it, and I'll make a decision from there. So that's the first thing. They elevate the word of God, the traditions above the word of God. The second one is problem is that they lay aside the word of God. They lay aside a word of God when it comes into direct conflict with their tradition. 
And so you take the example again of Jesus here. They could either honor the word of God and provide for their parents, or they could follow the tradition of man and not provide for their parents. Two, two ideas in conflict with one another, and so something's got to go. And they choose, whenever that happens, they choose their tradition. You know, in our day, many people, even many that name the name of Christ, are putting aside the word of God. They're saying things like, well, yeah, I know, I know the Bible teaches that God created the world in sick days, but we know so much more today scientifically. They say, you know, I know the Bible speaks out against sexual morality, but the times we live in are so different. They say, I know that Jesus declared himself to be the only way, but we live in such a pluralistic society these days. Surely there's different paths for the one that is sincere. And each of those ideas, they contradict the word of God. It's a laying aside of the word of God. And it was a danger to them. It's a danger in our day as well. Be careful with that. Now let's continue on. Look at verse 20, or 10 down to verse 20. It says, Now he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came, and they said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both are, will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile anyone. Now, to this point, the interaction had been between Jesus and the religious leaders with the crowd as sort of an audience to what is going on. Now, Jesus turns his attention to the crowd. The religious leaders want to be an audience they can be, but now he begins to address the crowd. And, and as we see there in verse 10 and following, he's, he kinda, let's, let's talk about this now. He says, hear and understand that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. Now, somebody there said, what? Say, what? It's not what goes in there. It defiles a person. Because 2,000 years of tradition and even parts of the Levitical law taught the exact opposite of what Jesus said there. And in one sentence, Jesus rescinds the whole system of ceremonial defilement. Speaking to the crowd that was formed there, he makes it very clear that it's not whether it's, it's not whether or not they have ceremonially clean hands that defiles them, but it's hypocritical behavior and teaching that defiles a person, which is on display here by the Pharisees and scribes. That's what defiles a person. And you've got to realize that this whole interaction would have been stunning to those that are in attendance there that are observing it because nobody ever spoke to Pharisees and scribes in this manner. Nobody ever called them out or questioned them, and certainly nobody corrected them on their religious teachings, particularly not some backcountry preacher without any formal credentials, but Jesus does. And I love the disciples. Look at verse 12. They say, Jesus, don't you know that the Pharisees are offended by you, by this, by the things that you were saying? Of course Jesus knew that the Pharisees would be offended by this. Of course he knew. He meant to offend them because, you know why? They needed to be offended because their teaching was wrong. 
And so, of course, he knew. And I would say this. If you gather to study the word or to meet with the Lord for a time of prayer and contemplation of the word of God and you never come away from those times offended, then I would suggest that we have a problem. You have a problem. If what I said here each Sunday from this pulpit up here or what others that come up here speak of, if that never pricks your heart a, a little and leaves you a little bit uncomfortable, then either I got a problem or you got a problem. But there's a problem. Because the word of God, when we come to it, it exposes areas of our lives. And if it's always just comfortable and sweet and nice and it makes me feel good about myself and all of that, then we got a problem here. These guys were wrong. And they needed to be called out on that. And if that offended them, well, then that offended them. Now, I'm not saying we got to go poke people in the eye and start trouble or whatever. And everybody here crying? They've got enough tears here today? And, you know, most of you mad at me? Good, I did my job. I'm not saying it has to be like that necessarily. But if we're true to the word, sometimes something that is shared is going to be painful. And hopefully that offense, this offense, would cause them to consider what was said and to go away and search out if these things were actually so. And so Jesus continues. He says, every plant that my heavenly father has planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides, he says. If the blind lead the blind, they'll fall in the pit. Now, you remember back in chapter 13, we had that whole series of the kingdom of heaven parables that is there in chapter 13. Well, one of those parables spoke of the wheat and the tares. Some of our versions say the wheat and the weeds. And in that parable, there was an enemy that snuck in at night and sowed weeds right alongside of the wheat. And the servants immediately, they suggest, hey, let us go out, and let's, let's go out to the fields, we'll dig up the weeds. Some enemy came in and did what he did. But wisely, the master responded, and he said, don't let, let the weeds be. Lest in pulling up the weeds, at the same time you pulled up the, the, te- the wheat as well. What Jesus declared in that chapter in a parable, he now declares in very plain language. And so, in regards to these Pharisees, he says, let them alone. He's he's saying their teachings will eventually be exposed. Now, is there ever a place to call out false teachers? I certainly think there is. But more often than not, our best response is to just leave them alone because they will be exposed in time. And I've encountered a lot of Christians that make themselves miserable trying to fix everybody else. There's a 19th century preacher, his name is Vance Havner, And he used to say this, he would say, a bulldog can whip a skunk any day, but it just isn't worth it. And I I think those are very wise words. We're called to run our course with endurance. Let God take care of those over there. But Jesus' greater concern here is not these hypocritical teachers, but rather the ones that the hypocritical leaders are leading astray. And so notice he says in verse 14 that there's these people, these leaders are leading people into a pit. And that's why he gets into it here with them because they were leading others into peril. Now, no doubt, Jesus cares about the religious leaders. He cares about their eternity. He cares about them, so to speak, from falling into a pit. But sometimes you have to pivot from the hard-hearted that will not hear and focus instead your attention on protecting those that will. I can imagine, I haven't really spoken with the group that went to Ocean City, but I can imagine many times there were times where they made the decision to pivot away from someone who just wanted to fight with them and argue with them 
to somebody whose heart was open. I remember being at Ryder University one time, coming out of the bookstore, and there was two Jehovah's Witnesses sitting at a table that you could come and you can get information from the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I thought, that'd be great. I'll go give the Jehovah's Witnesses some information. And I went and I kind of spoke with them, and there was a young person. They they usually will have an experienced disciple, quote-unquote, and a young person who's kind of learning. And as I'm talking to them, you know, the older person was set in his ways. But the young person began to kind of pose some questions. And I would answer the question, and then they would, huh. And then he posed another question. And it very quickly came from challenging me to wondering from me. And so I just focused my attention on that. I think it was a girl, I forget. Um, but just focusing my attention on that particular person until the older person said, you're not allowed to talk to her anymore. I'm like, okay, all right, or whatever. But, you know, we, we pivot here. We focus on those whose heart might be open and Jesus does that here now Peter I love Peter he's the greatest isn't he because he's so much like us he's just an honest guy and he says he basically says I have no idea what you're talking about he says explain the parable to me or to us he says now here's the funny thing there was no parable Jesus didn't give a parable here but he's so lost he's like I don't understand the story I didn't tell a story he's like oh okay I got here Jesus made a statement that the blind leading the blind would lead to destruction Now, I sort of wonder, I'm trying to figure out Peter, I wonder if part of his difficulty is that he just can't fathom this idea that the religious leaders from Jerusalem would be the blind guides in this scenario here. That that just doesn't compute because they're the ones everybody looks to for guidance and information and what God wants us to do or whatever. But that is exactly what Jesus is saying, that they are blind guides And so more clearly, Jesus says, are you still without understanding? Well, let me put it in the clearest possible terms that I can. He goes back and he explains this idea of the dirty hands and and food. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Can you believe this is Bible? You know what I mean? It's like science class. Um, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And then he goes on, he lists some sins he says they come out of the heart but to eat with unwashed hands that doesn't defile a person one commentator i read he said surely these words must be the lord's for no one would have felt it appropriate to include them in holy scripture otherwise surely these words must be the lord's the lord about how the body processes food it seems like such a strange thing to include here but as clearly as possible jesus makes it clear that it's not the stomach that God is concerned about, but rather the heart. That the food you eat is not going, and how you eat it, is not going to defile you. Now, I will say the food you eat may alter your shape a little bit, and it may affect your cholesterol and stuff like that, and that's certainly not good for you or whatever. So take a lesson from me, friends, as you can imagine, a negative one. But what, what defiles a man is what comes out of the man's heart, he says. That's where defilement lies. And the Pharisees were teaching that what goes into the mouth, in this case, dirty food because you have dirty hands, that that defiles a person. But in actuality, Jesus said, no, no, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Or maybe more properly, it's what reveals the defilement because it's what's going on in the heart already. Now, there's a trend today to blame our sins. So Jesus here, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness. There's a trend today to blame our sins on other people or other things. And so there are those that are moving through the Christian church 
that will speak of if you have a proclivity toward lust or gambling or pornography or whatever it may be, they will say that that is the demon of lust or the demon of pornography, and it's got a grip of you, and we've got to cast that demon out of your life. They will say they'll blame it on something else. So it's not really your sin, but it's the demon of alcoholism that made you do it. They will say, and if we cast that demon out, you'll be set free. That's not Bible. That's not Bible at all. Sin proceeds from our own heart. And so your lust, your pornography problem, whatever it may be, that's going on in your heart. And that's where it needs to be dealt with. There's others that would suggest the reasons that we do the things we do is because of our mom or dad and the many mistakes that mom or dad made in our lives. Now, certainly I think that that will influence the person that you are, but your response to those influences is your response. And so stop blaming mom and dad. It's the condition of your heart that leads you to either steal or to murder or to commit adultery or any of the other sins that Jesus lists there. And these religious leaders, they were suggesting outward changes of behavior, but what they really needed was a total heart transplant. Charles Spurgeon, he said, murders begin not with the dagger, but with the malice of the soul. And we can change our outward actions and still have a heart that is very far from God. And sooner or later, our defiled heart is going to manifest itself in our lives, the lives that we live. And Jesus came to give us a new heart. You recall, following his sin of adultery and murder, in the Old Testament, David, he broke down and he prayed and he asked the Lord to totally cleanse him from the inside out. Psalm 51, he said, Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Speaking of the return of Israel in the last days and of the national salvation of the, of the people of Israel, the prophet Ezekiel He spoke the word of the Lord. He said this, and I will give you, God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, soft, able to hear from the Lord. Speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said this, I will give the people a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. What we don't need is a bunch of rules that will affect our outward appearance but do nothing to heal our diseased hearts. What we need is Jesus to come in and transform us from the inside out, to take our old heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh. And it normally sounds bad. You don't want flesh or whatever, but in this case it's very good because it means soft, pliable, able to be molded into his image. Many times people come to church here Calvary, Because over the last couple of weeks or whatever, they've begun to realize that they have a problem. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. Maybe they got in trouble with the law. Maybe they have some difficulties at work or in relationships or whatever. And they start attending services hoping that that will make everything all right. Now look, if that's your story, I'm glad you're here. But I'll say this, that attending Sunday services isn't your answer. I'm glad you're here, but attending Sunday services isn't your answer Your answer is Jesus Christ. Your solution to your problem is this. It's the acknowledgement of your sin, the acknowledgement that there are consequences for sin, and then finally the acknowledgement that he alone paid the price of those consequences. You deal with those properly, 
And that means you enter into a relationship with your creator. You deal with those properly, and Christ imparts into you a new heart, which is capable of walking with him and in his ways. Now, there's others of us here, the vast majority of us, many of us probably, we think, sit here thinking, yeah, okay, I got that. But I've been a believer for a long time. And the reality is I got a whole lot of junk that's still in me. You tell me I've been given a new heart, but I still have evil, murderous, adulterous thoughts within me. And I would just respond and say, I I hear what you're saying. I'm there too. Each one of us, when we come to Christ, we have indeed been given a new heart, as the scripture makes clear. And in doing so, the chains that previously bound us, we sang a song about it, they've been broken. And I've said many times before, not only have the penalty of our sins been dealt with that we can go to heaven, not only have the penalty of our sins been dealt with, but I think more importantly here on the earth, the power of our sin has been dealt with. That we no longer need to be mastered by sin because we have been set free and enabled to walk in the newness of life. So we know that's the case, right? Everybody agrees with that, hopefully? Yet, our old man... Bible refers to it as our old man in the King James, our flesh, our sinful nature, depending on the version that you're reading, is still present with us. So we've been given a new heart and the chains have been cut and we can walk in newness of life, but yet the old man still lives there. And as if you've been a believer for any time, you know the old man wants to reign. He likes the way that it used to be. She likes the way that it used to be. Now, you're not strange if that's your experience. I'm sure each one of us in this room can say, amen, brother. I've been there. And the Apostle Paul, he's a pretty good guy, right? You would agree? The Apostle Paul was there as well, and he knew your struggle. He wrote this. It's in Romans chapter 7, and I'd encourage you to read the chapter again regularly when you can. But in Romans seven twenty one, he said this, So I find then a law, a principle that works within me, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He knew the struggle. And that's why, I don't know why Jeff picked the songs that he did. I hope the Lord was speaking to him, I would imagine. But in each one of those songs, many of those songs, he spoke about the way the Lord strengthens us to walk with him. And that's why we depend on him. We, we rely on him and we live close to him. Now, in some cases, our struggle with sin is just in not knowing that certain things are sin. And so all of our lives, we've been living our lives, and we were told that this is good. This is okay, enjoy it, you know, move in that direction, grasp it for all it's worth. And now we begin to discover, oh my, this is actually sin. And so sometimes the struggle is that we just didn't know. I remember when I was coming to know Christ, uh, I was about 17, 18 years old, and it seemed like every year of my walk with him, the Lord was revealing things to me. And so initially there were these things. You've got a foul mouth. Yeah, I don't like when you talk that way. You need to stop that. Like, oh, but I'm becoming an adult. Isn't this what adults do? Yeah, no. No, we don't do that. You know, this is me and the Lord talking. And so he was dealing with that. Then he was dealing with the next area and then the next area of my life. And things were coming into my heart and in my mind that I was, really? That's, that's not good either? I told you now. He's working on me with driving. And stop being so mean to people, you know, when you drive or whatever. And I'm like, that's a sin? Come on, God. You know what I mean? Like, I can't believe it or whatever. He's working on me. And so the Lord works, and we have to, he has to reveal certain things to us. We become aware of them, and then we begin to take the steps of change. Say, Lord, you've got to help me with this. 
and he begins to do that work in us. We have to retrain our hearts and our minds. And the scripture talks about that. It calls it being renewed in our minds. Wouldn't it be great if God would just kind of zap our minds and our hearts and make us new people, like totally, in every single part of that? Can he do that? Yeah, he can. Does he normally? No, he doesn't. I've met believers where there was like an area of their life where God just said, you know what? No more of this. Boom. And he dealt with it. And, And there's guys and gals that are sitting in this room. They tell me testimony of that. But when I hear that story, never once did they say, God dealt with all of my sin by zapping me. It's usually just one area in their life. All right, and that's by his grace and his mercy. But the vast majority, the, the, the normal order of things, the way that God works, is by revealing these things through, to us, opening his word to us. We struggle with it. We, we, I don't know, Lord, if I agree. I'm not sure about that one, Lord. Or we make deals with God. You know what, Lord, I'll clean up this many areas, and can I hold this one back to myself? And we kind of go through this process, and he just keeps putting his finger and putting his finger until finally the pressure that he puts on our heart, we say, you know what? I want to be with you more than I want that thing I give. And that's how God does this work in in our lives. That's the normal order of operation. He sits us down with his word, and we begin the process of becoming his disciples. The word of God, when prayerfully received, sanctifies a person. The psalmist said, how can a young man keep his way pure? what we want, right? We want to walk in God's ways. He finishes by taking heed according to God's word. The word of God sanctifies. Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of being washed in the water of the word. The psalmist, again the psalmist in Psalm 119, he said, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the word of God that God uses to sanctify our defiled hearts, to change us from the inside out. And that's why we gather together as a group of believers so that we can hear what the Spirit might want to say to his church. And we do that with regularity. It's why we gather together as a small group of believers. Because there we have the opportunity to read the Word, to process the Word, to chew on the Word and discuss the Word with others. And as iron sharpens iron, as the book of Proverbs says, we can have that experience through that small group experience. It's why we dig into the Word for ourselves. In that daily time alone with the Lord that he might speak to us, in those quiet places and lead us in the way everlasting. It's why we're offering this manuscript study of the Oxano series um, during the month of July so that people can learn how to dig into the word for themselves and hear what the Lord might be trying to say to them. The Lord loves us. Would you agree? And he wants very good things for our lives. He's not content to leave us the way that he found us, but instead he desires to transform us into the image of his son. Not merely with our outward look, though our outward look might change to some degree, the things that we do, or whatever it may be, but he wants to change us from the inside out because that's where real change is. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're blessed by it, encouraged by it, uh, particularly today. And Lord, we pray you would give us a greater heart for it and for you. Lord, I pray that uh, for any of us that may have grown perhaps comfortable in our walks with you. We've advanced pretty good. We're, we're far enough along. We're happy with that. Lord, we know that uh, we have a long way to go uh, to be just like your son. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, shine your light perhaps a little bit brighter into some of those darker corners.
and you'd reveal. And Father, I pray that as a body of believers, because I know individually that's painful and I shy away from that and I'm not interested in it. But Lord, if I, uh, I'm with a group of believers and we're all going through it together, Lord, we can encourage one another in the process. And Lord, that's why you brought us together as a group of believers. And we're so grateful for it. So we pray, Lord, that you, again, I think I said it earlier, that you would knit our hearts together as we run this race. We pray our prayer in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.